keep them indoors. A safe cat is a happy cat. You're listening to the Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm happy to say I have in the studio Nicholas Montemirano. Um, welcome. Thanks. Welcome. I feel um, at home already. You do. Yeah. <laughs> what is it about the place, Nick? Oh, it's it, very laid back, very friendly. Lots of signs around. Signs of warning. Warning. Dire consequences. Yes. If swears happen and, and other things. Um, well, I would like to, I'm going to read uh, the bio in the back of your, you're here, you're visiting uh, the University of Michigan. Um, you're going to read tomorrow. Yes. Right? And um, so I'll announce that. Let's see, we've got um, fiction reading on Thursday, October 18th at five o'clock at the Vandenberg Room. That's the second floor of the Michigan League on 9-11 North University. Um, and the reading is free and open to the public. That's a good thing. Um, I don't think I've ever been in that room before. Have you Have you scouted I, it yet? I or? did. I scouted it today. What's, it's nice. Yeah, a little podium. You could hide behind it pretty well. <laughs> it's not just a little thin one um yeah looks good looks good for a reading so you can be doing sort of like crazy like um i could take my like, shoes off yeah. i could you know could do whatever i want basically <laughs> so everyone should come and show up for the reading and to see what sort of antics you're gonna bring yes we'll see what condition i'm in when i emerge from behind the podium yes <laughs> right. um okay well let's um i'm gonna you're you're here with your your well today we're we're um You've said that you're going to read some, one of the stories or a piece of a story from If the Sky Falls. Yes. Um, and and so um, I'm going to actually read your bio just to, as way of introduction. And did you write this or did the... the um, I think I probably wrote it. Most things these days, whether you publish stories in magazines or books, they, they make you do a lot more of it than they probably used to. Write your own bio, write your own copy. Right, right. You know, pu pu you know publicize the book for us, do everything. <laughs> but yes, I probably wrote that bio at some point. But then this is good. Then you have a little more control over yeah, it, it's too. Good. Okay, well, yeah. okay, well, I'll read it. And then okay. we maybe we'll talk about it. <laughs> okay. Um, Nicholas Montemirano was born in Brooklyn in 1970 and grew up in Queens. He is the author of a novel, A Fine Place. His short fiction has been published in Esquire, Zoetrope, and elsewhere. His stories have been reprinted in the Pushcart Prize, 27, uh, 27th, Best of the Small Presses, and Scribner's Best of the Fiction Workshops, 1999, and have been cited as Distinguished Stories in the Best American Short Stories for 2001 and 2002. He has received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the McDowell Colony Yaddo, and the Edward F. Albee Foundation. He teaches at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, so, as you were reading that, I was thinking about the whole bio thing. Uh -huh. and that there's, there's, it's almost like a genre unto itself now. So how so? Well, 
if I'm reading the bio of somebody and it just says, you know, Joe Smith lives in Oregon, period. I don't know. Sometimes people do that just to sort of like make themselves me- seem mysterious. Don't you think? Have you seen that before? <laughs> I would do that more. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> are you saying that those of us who do that are more like posers or something? <laughs> no, no. But, but at times I've seen really famous writers do that. Like Alice Monroe. I've seen bios of her that right. say things like, you know, Alice Monroe is a writer living in Canada. She has published several works of fiction, period. And I'm like, well, I know you're more than that. Where's the rest of it? So I sometimes right. see these small bios and I, I think, what's that What's that all about? Yeah. Is there a reason behind it? I, th- I think, ooh, I think also Ann Carson says Ann Carson lives in Canada or something uh-huh. like yeah. that or has in the past. And um, well, well, in a way, it's sort of strange that often I think it seems like strange that we, we need to list everything as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's always this this choice of, you know, what, do I leave this out? Do I put where I grew up? Does that matter? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's probably terrible to think too much about it, I guess. I would say that that's like the part that's really enjoyable, though, to see that you were born in Brooklyn uh-huh. and Brooklyn and and, uh, and where you grew up and, and sort of where uh-huh. locate where you are now. Although it's weird with that locating where you are now, that often has changed by the time, you know, because <laughs> yeah. we're more mobile these days or as yeah. opposed to when we were riding around in pony carts, I guess. Right. One of my-, my first, my first book came out when I was living in Missouri and I, and I, I don't associate myself with Missouri at all, but that book forever will have, you know, I live in Warrensburg, Missouri and <laughs> it's weird to see that still. And is that a fine place? Was a fine that place. Book? Yeah. That was your first book and that was a novel. Yes. So, so what was that like to have a novel come out first? Um, was that like the first form that you worked in, Nick? No, I, I was writing stories before that, and the short story is the form that I, I love most. Um, Why is that? Um, it just comes more naturally to me, um, I, I, and I feel like I can take more risks with the short story form because, you know, if I get to page 15 or page 20 and I realize that I've gone a wrong direction it may be a month's worth of work that I have to sort of backtrack and start over whereas a novel it's kind of it's kind of scary you know you you could take a wrong turn and suddenly two years later you realize you made a wrong turn and you have to sort of backtrack and rewrite things and so I find the novel as a form a little more frightening to write and as a writer I like to be willing to make mistakes because I think your best writing can come when you're taking a chance and you might fail and I feel like I'm more willing to fail with short stories because it doesn't seem like a lot of time has been quote unquote wasted um, right. so I, I was writing stories before the novel um, and I had, I had an agent who was interested in my stories but said oh, I don't know if I can sell these they're not cohesive enough if you write a novel get back in touch with me and so when I wrote one I did and and that's the first book she sold the other stories that I had written beforehand I I guess I had realized they weren't my best work and never published them anyway in book form so it kind of worked out nicely yeah um were they published in some magazines then because you they say were. In book form they were yeah almost all of them were published in magazines but I you know when the time came to actually include. put together a collection include them um I, I didn't I included only newer stories oh that's so interesting it isn't it well yeah because usually sometimes people are told that they have to have or usually like the the normal the normal <laughs> route is to have a few stories placed and mm-hmm. then somebody's interested in looking at the collection as a whole yeah these days it seems like even if you place your stories in really good magazines the route seems to be 
do you have a novel? I mean, that's the question that you're always asked because since my novel came out, which was in 2002, I've pretty much been writing only short stories for, for those years. And um, even when, as my agent is starting to think about sending out my new collection, my second collection, which I just finished this summer, the question keeps coming up, like, are you working on a novel? Do you have a novel? And I am, and I do, which is a good thing. I'm, I'm working on one. But if I, if I wasn't working on one, it would be tougher, you know, for an agent to sell the collection, which which I think is a shame, but it is just a fact of the business. I think of publishing these days, so um, there's pressure. I think you're right. Most writers do the story collection followed by the the novel. I think. Um, yeah. and and with the and and so that is so interesting that like that you almost felt like you had had to write the novel. How did did the agent did you send her some stories? So the reason why I'm asking this is because some. some there's the MFA program here, mm. and I think some some people might be wondering about did you did you send out stories on your own, or did you uh, look for an agent with stories first, and then? So sh- when I was first getting started with the, those first stories, um, I looked for an agent first to try to sell the story collection. I think I, I sort of had this naive sense of like, yeah, I've written stories, I've published them in magazines, I think they're pretty good. Sure, get an agent and she'll sell it. But I think. It slowly became clear to me that even then, you know, publishers were were looking for novels, and so the first step was that the agent liked my work. Um, but she, but she did say, if you happen to write a novel, get get back in touch with me. And I didn't write the novel just for that reason. I, I wanted to write it, and, I, and that's that's one piece of advice I would give to any young writer out there: is don't write a novel because somebody tells you you're supposed to or you have to because it probably won't be very good. Um, so I would never do that. I think as I look forward in my career, I, I probably will probably will write more short stories than novels, even though I know business-wise that's probably not going to bode well for me. But um, So I've never done that. I've never said, well, they want a novel. I guess I'll go write one. Right. Um, yeah. Because that's not why you're writing. The business, business side of it isn't... W- why you're writing no no not at all <laughs> yeah that would feel pretty empty yeah. i wrote that novel and they you know it sold but i don't really like it very much yeah, yeah that would be terrible uh, um so. i guess a pseudonym right <laughs> i don't know yeah nightmare <laughs> um so but i do think you're right though that the that the the most common route these days seems to be i have these stories you know you like them i'll write a novel for you next and you'll publish both books um, and if you happen to do that, that's that's, that's great. Okay. As long as you want to write that novel, right, right. Well, yeah. actually, I do know. Like uh, a friend has just had uh, her a collection of short stories, linked short stories, um, pick, picked right. up. So that that so I guess she's kind of going against the 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 system in in a way. It's lucky. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, maybe the fact that they're linked helps. You know that the because I think the because I asked my agent this and I ask other people I know who are in. In publishing this question, I say, what's what's the deal? I love, I love reading short stories. Why don't, why doesn't everybody else love reading them? And and I think the answer that I most often get is that booksellers need a thirty second soundbite to sell your book to bookstores. And with a short story collection, it's very hard to get that thirty second soundbite. Whereas with a novel, 
you can get one. Right. So maybe with linked stories, linked stories they have the sound bite. Maybe. So. Yeah. How strange that that could be something that's influencing. Oh, it's crazy. People's, uh, or yeah, and you'd think with our attention span, right, as a human race growing shorter, that short stories should really, and and with the advent of like uh, the the short like flash fiction and short yeah. shorts, maybe the short story will again, because there was a time where it seems like it was, it was the short story was like the. Maybe I'm okay. Now I'm really You're speaking right. out of turn. I was going to say the American art form. <laughs> You're right, though. You're right. Because actually, this semester I'm teaching a course called the Contemporary American Short Story. And most of what we're reading is, you know, recent, last 10 or 15 years. But I spend the first couple of weeks giving sort of a history and the evolution of the form, et cetera. And it's true. There, you know, the short story was much more revered, what much more revered, you know, in the '30s with Hemingway and Fitzgerald, and then again in the '80s with Carver. There's sort of a, a people you like to use the word renaissance, but it, it's true. It was it was more respected form in the culture than it than it is now. I think, um, which is not to say that there aren't great short stories being published, and there there are probably more venues for short stories than ever now. They're just not probably getting the widest readership that they can some of some of these magazines but maybe that'll be changing though because maybe i'm glad you said renaissance <laughs> maybe, there will be, maybe there'll be a renaissance for the short story well i think there is a renaissance going on right now but it has to do with the quality of the short stories i think there's great short stories being published a lot of really innovative writers but in terms of those books selling well or finding readership that's where the short story i think is kind of lagging Unfortunately, right, right. and yeah. and I notice with um, with the the press too, because it's the, your press for the um for if the sky falls and if is italicized, which is great. I hope to talk about that with you later, Nick. Mm. Um, is Louisa Louisiana State University Press, mm -hmm. um, but it seems like there's a division, Yellow Shoe Fiction. So there's like yeah. a, a branch of the press. Yeah, the LSU is is has a really good reputation for putting out excellent, excellent books of poetry, um, in addition to other kinds of books. But they stopped publishing fiction, I don't know how many years ago, I'm going to guess maybe 15 years ago. Um, and they're probably best known fiction-wise for publishing um, A Confederacy of Dunces. Oh, that's which, a, yeah. a wonderful book. Thank goodness they published that. And I don't know if you know the story behind that. I won't go into the whole thing. but the, A I, little bit, I, I do. I guess he, the author committed suicide his mother really wanted to get this book published nobody was interested but L lsu took it and published it and won the pulitzer prize etc but they stopped publishing fiction um, a while back and so the yellow shoe fiction series was their sort of return to fiction so they published one book a year in the series mine was the first book in the series and they've published two since then i think so one each year that would make sense yeah because yeah. 2005 right okay oh that's wonderful nick that's well um I'll tell you what, this, let's take a short break and, and we'll be back. The Living Writers Show with Nicholas Montemarano and his book, If the Sky Falls. Time. 
Welcome back. If you're just joining us today, uh, I'm lucky to have Nicholas Montemarano in the studio with his book, If the Sky Falls. Um, and and currently, let's see. Well, we've been we've basically been we've been talking about many different things, all stemming from your bio in in the back of the book. But I, I had a question for you because I noticed that you have another book, The Worst Degree of Unforgivable. And and that wasn't mentioned, so I wonder, like, why why omit that? And and I looked in the back. I thought, well, maybe it'll be, maybe it's not in here, but it's on the back of the book. And right. Well, that's an, that's an interesting question that will probably lead us back to some of the things we were talking about already, which is the publishing industry. Okay. Um. So I'll I'll, I'll try to give you the short version of the, <laughs> of the story of the worst degree of unforgivable, which actually never became an actual book. Um, oh, no. What happened was my first book, uh, A Fine Place, was taken by Context Books, which is a publisher in, in New York. Yes. And he bought a story collection as well for me, which was called The Worst Degree of Unforgivable. And that was Fried- Friedlander? Bo Friedlander. Bo Friedlander, yeah. yes. Right. He was this... this do you know about it? Well, I actually tried to contact him to get a copy of your book. Oh. And then I saw, I looked at the history of the press. So why don't you, you, I do know a little bit, but you. The short history of the press. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, oh no. <laughs> it was this great, great independent publisher in, in, um, in Tribeca in New York. And he was doing some really cool books. And at the time that my agent was trying to sell my novel, um, it was going through the usual, usual process of. Norton, Knopf, Random House, etc. And, and editors were really, really loving the book and wanting to publish it. That's great. But when they took it to their editorial boards and their marketing departments and so forth, it usually that's where it kind of got shot down. They weren't sure how they were going to sell a book about this particular subject matter. Um, and so we started moving down to more independent publishers. And um, I was in a bookstore one day and I, I picked up this book called Assorted Fire Events by David Means. Um, and I loved it. I thought it was just incredible. It's like one of the best books I'd read in years. And so I called my agent and I said, do you know anything about this context books? Mm. And she's like, oh, I just sent your, your book to them. And I just had a feeling about them. And, and he took my book. Um, both, he is Bo Friedlander. You usually don't see he, when you see a publisher, you say they, but he he was the publishing company. He did everything. (laughs) Um, and my agent was saying, you know, this is exactly the kind of publisher you need because, he is the editorial board. He is the marketing department. There's nobody else that's going to say no. Um, and and you, so you aesthetically liked the book you saw on the shelf because it attracted you, loved it. right? And then, and loved then it. the the inside was, the, yeah, yeah, it was, you know, and and so he bought that book in a story collection, and then before the story like story collection came out, it was already on Amazon. It had a cover, it had a really nice artwork. It had went gone through final edits, and then Context Books went bankrupt he got you know he Bo Friedlander got sued by several authors who, who to whom he owed money and he just couldn't survive it and so um, that book got sort of caught up in bankruptcy proceedings I had to hire a lawyer to get the rights back it was oh, really yeah. like sort of a disappointing moment where the book was about to come out in like a month or two and suddenly context books was no more um, and so by the time I got the rights to the book back I had written more stories. I kind of tinkered with the collection a little bit. I probably took about half of the stories out and added new ones. And that's what became If the Sky Falls. And so The Worst Degree of Unforgivable was about half of these stories. And, and the other half have been in magazines, but I never collected them. Oh. So that's why The Worst Degree of Unforgivable doesn't exist 
anywhere. It never happened. Um, yeah, that is so strange, and, and it's because you also it it's so it's so disappointing. Like you said, that it didn't work out because what an amazing because it sounds like this like a one man powerhouse really, and believing and sort of passionate about literature. Yes, and it's um. And then that's just yeah. And I think of even like the the book that that turned me on to context books. David Means's collection of sorted fire ends. I, I don't know if you've read that I book, haven't. but boy, I, I really recommend it. Okay. Um, it's a book that other publishers, larger publishers, were turning down. And here comes Bo Friedlander, and he recognized the merit of it, published it, and that book went on to to win the LA Times Book Award, and it was a finalist for the Nas- National Book Critics Circle Award, and it's had a, a subsequent life. It's yes. been reprinted, which is a wonderful. So thing. it has been reprinted, but who? So who who bought? Because context is no more. So right. who bought it? Once uh, David Means's book won the awards that it won, then suddenly the other publishers started swarming around it and wanting to do it in paperback. Um, so I, th- I don't know which publisher it was, but, um, but it's it's had a life since then and and a, a well deserved life. It's just a really great book. Um, So, you know, that would have been a good situation in some ways to have a publisher to sort of who knows your work and, you know, you could work with for a long time. But on the other hand, the sort of blessing in disguise is that if the sky falls, I'm happier with this book than I would have been probably with The Worst Degree of Unforgivable. As much as I liked that book, this is, in my opinion, better. It holds together more. More itself. So the book. In retrospect, even though that moment when I found out the context was folding was really difficult, now I look back on it and think that was actually turned out to be a good thing for me, not for Bo, but for me. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Poor, poor Bo. Poor Bo. That's yeah. a, but it's it seems like he's like a a, a man that can bounce back, so he he yeah, seems he's, fine. I think he's in publishing again somewhere. Yeah, working. Yeah, I think working for one of the bigger. I think so. Bigger houses. Well, well. How about let's hear something. Sure. From if the sky falls. Okay, I will read. Um, I'll read the beginning of um, a story that comes later in the book. Uh, the story is called "Man Throws Dog Out Window." That's a great bookmark, by the way. Oh yeah, the bookmark is um, a, a, a sort of photo booth, series of photo booth shots of of uh, me and my wife Nicole. Um, Yeah, I love these photos. I I keep them in my book when I give readings. So, yeah. So, man throws dog out window. We go from that to a dog flying out a window. Um, Okay, this is the beginning of the story. Before we looked up to see the dog falling splay-legged toward us, we heard a woman scream. We are ashamed now to say that not one of us walking to lunch, nor any of us standing smoking, thought the scream an indication of something truly grave happening. Those walking did not break stride, those smoking with a flick of a finger tapped off ash, then breathed in more smoke. We thought a mouse out from under a fridge, or a woman tickled, or shower water turned cold. It was not until the scream did not stop that we, all of us at once it seems to me now, looked up and saw the dog. We were concerned first, though briefly, with taking in what was happening, with getting the story right. We imagined the pleasure of being able to tell our husbands and wives and children at day's end. Then, because to each of us the dog seemed to be falling directly overhead, we ran for cover. Some crouched under awnings. Some simply put their hands up as if this could protect them. Some of us ran into each other knocked each other over. 
We had been sent so quickly into a panic that only a few of us noticed the two gunshots and that the woman's screaming had stopped after the first. The dog's descent took no more than a slow count to five, or so we told our families and neighbors that evening. There was no panic on the dog's face that we could see. She pedaled her legs as if swimming. No one looked long enough to see the dog bounce up from the, from the cement, though we told our families and friends that the dog bounced once before coming to rest. Its legs, we saw later, before one of us covered the body with his jacket, were bent in the way the limbs of dead, broken things are bent, snapped back, snapped apart. If it were not for the blood around the dog's mouth, and one eye being more open than the other, it could have been a stuffed dog, its fall the result of a child's tantrum, the scream, the scream of a frustrated mother, nothing more. Beginning later that evening and continuing for weeks, we heard the rest of the story of the dog's death, which is a story we continue to tell and get pleasure from telling. It is a story we tell to friends at dinner parties and to strangers and doctors and dentist waiting rooms. Have I ever told you about the dog that almost fell on my head? Or, were you living in this neighborhood when the incident with the dog happened? Or, what do you think it would take for a man to throw a dog out a window? We like to begin with these types of teasers, questions to make listeners leaning close. Only after people are sufficiently intrigued perhaps to the point at which our walking away and refusing to tell the story would be painful to them. Only then do we begin, before we looked up to see the dog falling splay-legged toward us, we heard a woman scream. Thank you. Are you sure you want to say thank you? <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, oh, it's very vivid, actually. <laughs> and and the, such an excellent part with the, um, like, it, I think you say it was only afterwards that we realized we had heard two shots and, the, and two the screams. Sc- two think, screams yeah. and, yes, yeah. And, and meaning that she was shot then, mm-hmm. obviously, with mm. the. Um, yeah, that's so. So it seems to me that in the the book, there's like a close. You bring a very close eye to fears and um, and interesting that that falling. Um, that the 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 last story in the collection has part of the title mm-hmm. in it. I think uh, hold your hands up if the sky falls. If the sky hold falls, your hold hands. your hold up your hands. Hold yeah. up your hands. And then with this, it's like you you. The dog is falling as well. Uh-huh. Um, is that is that something that's you have? Do you have a fear of falling? <laughs> Come out and ask the question. <laughs> that's right. Come out and ask it. Um, what are you scared of, Nick? The answer is no. I don't have a fear of falling, but I, I wouldn't like it either. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't have a fear of heights or a fear of falling. No, it's not something that, that keeps me up. And um, this is definitely a book that I didn't put together. Like, I didn't start out writing this book like, oh, I want to talk about these themes and falling. It's going to be one of them, you know, and and especially given the way it came about where it used to be one book and then it was another. It sort of happened organically. And, um, and I think the title of the collection came with the last story that I wrote. The last story in the book is also the last story that I wrote chronologically. And... I don't know. I was reading through a book of aphorisms because I think aphorisms are really interesting. Um, And I saw this aphorism, if the sky falls, hold up your hands. I thought it was so great. And it happened to fit with this story that I was writing, the last story. And I thought that that was going to be the title of the book. And then a friend of mine, when I told her, I said, oh, I found the perfect title. 
for the book, if the sky falls, hold up your hand. She's like, that's great. Just take off the last phrase. And then I was like, oh yeah, that's perfect. So the falling theme was only something that when I looked back on the collection, after I came up with the title, I saw it in the dog story, the first story in the, the collection. Fa- falling apart. Yes. To fall apart. There's yeah. a part at the end, I think, where the, the narrator talks about, you know, no one, no one, no one said that the wind wouldn't blow our house down or something, you know, and, and then on yes. the cover, there's like a house sort of blowing through the, <laughs> through the sky. So it sort of came together in this natural organic way that was pretty cool to witness. It's not like I did it. I just sort of witnessed it come together. Yeah. Well, cause I guess it's that subconscious, right? Like what you're mm-hmm. concerned with will just, if you're working, honestly, it will surface. Or is that getting too cliche here on the Living Writers Show? That's true. That's really true, I think. I think, you know, I think that that's one of my fears as a writer is that as I'm progressing from one book to the next, I mean, I'm still young for a writer, but I'm, I'm starting to know myself better as a writer. I'm starting to go into books with more of a sense of what I want to do with the book and what's holding a collection together. And as much as that's great to know sort of where I'm going, there's a part of me that's also worrying, am I going to lose touch with that wonderful part that doesn't know? I don't want right. to lose part, lose touch with that because that's where these wonderful surprises come in. And so I trust that you can go into writing a book knowing or have any idea of where it's going to go, but but be open to those surprises from your subconscious because they're huge. I think they're great. Right, right. Because you don't want to feel like you're directing it too much, like pushing it in a way rather than having it um, unfold. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think some people say, oh, you don't want to know too much about what you're doing. You don't want to overanalyze yourself as a writer. And I think there's some wisdom to that. Um, but what do you do about the fact that as you're perhaps becoming a better writer, you know, and as you've written more, that you are getting to know yourself more as a writer how do you sort of reconcile those two things right right because right. you yeah you're, it's not as it but you it seems like you you might reconcile yourself by making sure that you're taking risks because that's something you spoke about right at the get-go when we started yeah. the conversation it's very it's very important to me yeah when i when i am working on a story as i'm sort of in the middle of it or as i'm approaching the end of it if i if i'm not feeling excited about it I know that something's obviously wrong and it's often it's the case that I haven't taken enough risks in it, that it's too easy. Like I'm, I'm sort of on autopilot. And if I realize that, then I can sort of go back and say, well, can I take a risk in this? Can I maybe suddenly tell it from a new angle at some point? Can I suddenly change narrators? Can I have a really abrupt ending to the story? Some, something. And I, and I, I'm definitely not an experimental writer who's, you know, work you pick up and you're and you're like, whoa, this this guy is really extremely experimental. Not at all, <laughs> but I do like to have something in my stories where a reader will sort of be jolted or surprised and think that's unexpected moment. You know, right? But 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 genuine, right? Not something that feels like well a gimmicky no, sort of thing. No. Like I'm gonna just yeah put a parrot in. Definitely the, every not. story <laughs> or so, right, right. see if anyone noticed the pair <laughs> no and i and i'm not drawn to that kind of work at all that mm-hmm. i can i can see the the attempt you know i can see the writer trying too hard i don't i don't like that myself as a reader so yeah i think you're right it has to be organic to the story not just sort of a trick um because every i guess everything you do can become a trick if you do it enough and i think when i was working on my second collection of short stories i just finished it this summer 
it's something I had to be really careful of because I, I was happy with If the Sky Falls. I liked the way the book came out. I'd gotten a couple of you know good reviews where people said certain things, and I and it's and you it's, felt like they got it in the reviews. I felt like they got it, and and it was it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, okay, that's that's who I am, that's what I do well, and I'm going to just do it again yeah. and again and again. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 I and I I'm I guess I'm happy. That's one case where it is good to know yourself to know like okay, in this book. I wrote in this kind of a style and this kind of a subject matter, and I had some metafictional moments coming into the stories. Well, when I do my new collection, I can't do that all the time, right. you know. And I and I do have one story in my new collection that does have a kind of surprising moment, and it's actually a story I'm reading tomorrow night. Tomorrow, because new work you'll read tomorrow read night work. in the Vander Vandenberg room at five o'clock. Yes, yeah, Michigan League. So I'm reading a story from the new collection, and it kind of has an ending that surprised me. Um, but once it happened, that was it for that collection. I couldn't do that again in any right. other story. Otherwise, it would be a gimmick. It would be a trick. And on that note, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be, we'll be right back with The Living Writers Show. Welcome back. You're listening to The Living Writer Show. And today, Nicholas Montemarano is here in the studio with If the Sky Falls. Um, so you mentioned, oh, I can't remember the exact word, I don't think, a meta, meta, Metafiction. metafictional moments. Yes. So I wanted to ask you about that. Does that, does that mean... Um, the moments in the story where the writer is present, like in the story called story, <laughs> and the writer talks about the writing process mm -hmm. and says that this is just a story at one point and then launch. Yeah, that's one example of it in the book. Yeah. Um, it, but I think metafiction, broadly speaking, could apply to like anything in a story that calls attention to the story as a story. Um, in that particular case that you mentioned in the story called story, um, it's the narrator, you know, two thirds of the way through the story, s sort of stopping the story dead and coming into the story and saying, well, part of what I just told you is, is not true here. I'm, I'm going to give you the truth now. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I have several of those kinds of moments in that book, but to various degrees of subtlety. Um, and I, I don't know, it, it must be something that I'm naturally drawn to, you know, as a writer, because it's kind of, it's something I keep coming back to organically. Like a self-commentary in a way, it's but a, it's the writer's the comment, not about the self, but about the, the act of writing. It's about intruding, the, yeah. not intruding, well, something. I, I guess maybe the way I'd put it is the, 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 the narrators of my stories often find themselves 
commenting on the struggle of telling of telling stories. Yes. You know? Well, even what you read to us today, it was about the con- the the imagined construction of the story. Uh, so even then, it's a concern. And yeah. Coming. Yeah. I didn't. I had never even thought of that story as one of the stories that that does that. But you're right. Yeah. Absolutely does that. And and so 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 what it what was your okay? Well, this might be stupid because you might not be able to say. I was going to say what was your intention about writing the story like this because it did really um, stun me. Uh, the reader, <laughs> when you said, I can go no further with a story. I do, know, do not know what happens next. And then um, several paragraphs later, I, and then, then, then the writer um, deconstructs c- the creating of stories and, um, and then says the story becomes an essay and starts and gives another con- like uh, is it concession or so admission the writer blurts out what he has always been afraid to blurt out and then follows dates yeah. with different pieces of the rest of the story yeah. what was your reaction to that i mean i'm just curious as a reader were you do you sort of did, did, was that interesting or was it more like did you feel cheated in a way that the story sort of stopped i'm always curious what people think <laughs> of these these things that happen <laughs> Hey, I'm the one asking the questions, Nick. <laughs> Not anymore. No. no, I thought, I mean, I really, I really liked it. I mean, I, but I would hesitate to say, like, cause I wouldn't want to say I really liked that move because then to me, then it's, it, cause I, I just wonder about the balance with artifice and what's genuine because all of the stories, if I'm correct in this collection, all have a narrator in the first person. That's correct. Right. Yes. But that's not the same. They're, they're, um, it, it's not as if the whole book is linked. No. Um, uh, uh, and so I guess with this one, it just, it confused me slightly because then I wondered if, if this was a story that was stepping out of fiction really this time, I guess really <laughs> you, to use that word to qualify it yeah. for real this time. Right. Yeah. Cause in the other ones, there was the commentator there uh-huh. in the narrator, but See, this that's, one I that's wondered That's interesting about. for me to hear. I, 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 I mean, I like as much as a writer can like a reader's reaction. I like that reaction. That's, that's kind of interesting that a reader would think later in the book when they got to sort of maybe the second or third kind of metafictional moment, think, well, is this really, does he mean it this time? Yes. Is this really real? I, and and I, would, I, I want my readers to think that. I want the reader to get that to that point and think, okay, is he, is he really giving me an essay? Is this right. true? Um, I like that. And I think it's because if there's one thing about my writing that I don't believe is going to change throughout my career, um, the style might change. My second collection is not as quite as stylistic um, as the first collection. Um, But the one thing that I think is going to remain the same is that I am obsessed with um, truth and fiction and the relationship between those two things. Really, like I, I have this theory that, you know, that most of us who write fiction are really telling our own story. We're, we're, We're writing our autobiographies, but we're hiding it. Um, I know I am. My fiction throughout my career, when all is said and done, is going to tell the story of my life in disguise, you know, and I think a lot of the writers whose work I really love, I get that feeling that this is real. Who are some of them then? Well, I'm thinking of Dennis Johnson. Mm -hmm. Jesus's Son is one of my favorite books. And I think it's well documented that that book came from a very real place. I mean, and I can tell, though, you know, he doesn't need, you know, there's no metafictional moments, but I can tell. Um, or a book like you know, the things they carried by Tim O'Brien. Like I can tell he's writing, he's digging into into his own story, and I always want to be digging into my own story. And it often happens that it comes out in these ways where 
I kind of step out and, and start talking as if I'm telling the truth. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not, but I talk as if I am. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so that is, in- it's interesting. Um, so many things that you, you're saying could lead us in so many different directions here. So I don't know um, quite which way to go. So now I'm doing the meta, <laughs> meta on the radio. Interview. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Huh? <laughs> um, so, well, well, the family and, and relationships actually figure prominently in the collection and, and especially like the first two stories, um, the sister, well, actually mother, father, sister, brother, and then in the second story, most clearly the brother and sister. And I noticed that the book itself is dedicated to your sister. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, but, but I, but I guess that there's also a deep, well, what, what is, were you aware that there was going to be family, um, members like the mother, father, and just called that really mm-hmm. in the stories themselves, maybe without names. Um, is that, was I aware that I was going to write a, a stories that were going to deal with family? Like, yes. Kind of thing? Yeah. Um, well, again, I didn't go into the collection with sort of an overall agenda, right. but at that period of time for those years that I was writing these stories, many of them tended to be preoccupied with these kinds of familial relationships, I think. So, and then, so that's why when I actually put together the collection, not all of the stories in the book, but a lot of them, especially in the first half and and the last story do tend to deal with those kinds of immediate family relations. Um, whereas my novel, um, my, my first book tends to deal with more extended family relations like grandparents and aunts and those kinds of things. But yeah, I think at that point in my life, I must have been preoccupied with those kinds of relationships and therefore it was coming out in my fiction. Whereas in my new collection, it's not, it's not as much there. I mean, it's there a little bit, but. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so, so what you're saying is that these are, you're preoccupied and these are concerns. So they're the things like it's probably even populating your dreams and what, um, but it seems like it's, it's also the aspect of relationship, like what we can see, like the control, controlling aspects of relationships. Say more about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, what what do I mean? What am I... I feel like you're I... holding back on me, T. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, because it, it feels like there's... the the Maybe that the, the you're writing about a level of... You're presenting some level where you can obviously see obvious controlling situations. Like in the second story, the sister is in a bad relationship, an abusive relationship. And then... Um, but then it's interesting because you could point to that and say, yes, she she is. But then to see how the, the narrator is being controlled by the family situations that came before and right. how it plays out. Yeah, I think there is a lot of that uh, in the stories. I mean, there's there's a lot about control. There's there's a lot about abuse, I think. Um, there's a lot of violence in the stories for sure. Sometimes it's kind of subtle and in the background, but it's it, there's there's the hint of violence even even when there's not actual violence. Even in the stories that are not about immediate family, I'm um, thinking of the story, the usual human disabilities, which is about this guy who's taking care of um, a man with cerebral palsy and doing everything for him, changing his diaper, washing him, feeding him. There's kind of like a weird abusive relationship there too, where the man with cerebral palsy is really demanding of the guy that's taking care of him. And then the guy that's taking care of him 
takes the man with cerebral palsy and his friend to a strip club. And there's there's sort of weird things going on there too. Um, the story Shift, which is also about a guy who's taking care of a man with cerebral palsy. There's there's sort of a controlling aspect to that, where there's this series of commands that the you know that the people who are um, disabled are asking um, the the guy to do change the TV channel, no, higher, lower. There is a sense of, you're right, I think control, psychological abuse, you know, in some of the stories. It's it's running through the through through the stories even when there's not, you know, immediate fam- familial relations. Yeah. Um, but not so much in my new new collection. <laughs> you know? It's weird. I can look at what my I could look at my stories and I could point and say, oh, this is what was preoccupying me then. This is what I was thinking about. You know, and you know, I, I never had a dog before, and um, when I when I met my wife, she had a dog. So then, eventually, I had a dog, um, and suddenly, dogs are popping up in all of my stories. You know, and and the man throws dog out window. I wrote after I, I had a dog. So it, even something small like thinking of dogs, you know, or a lot of my characters are married now instead of before they weren't. It, you can point. I can point to my own life and say, okay, that's why I'm thinking in these terms or from these vantage points. Right. And so and so those are some of the aspects that you're saying will just naturally come in and tell your autobiography in a way that's but it's interesting that you say I don't know cuz a lot of people are disturbed by that cuz they don't want it they don't want people to think that they're reflected directly or their their autobiography is within their their words. You know what? Now I have to do one of the signs. Um in uh, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Uh, we'll take a short break and we'll be back with Nick Montemarano. Welcome back. You're listening to The Living Writer Show. And today, um, Nicholas Montemarano with If the Sky Falls. Um, and Nick, if you're just turning in, tuning in, <laughs> um, tune in, turn off, whatever. <laughs> no, don't drop out. Um, stay in school, kids. 
<laughs> support college radio. <laughs> um, Nick, you had said like this because we're talking about your new work, which will be you'll be reading tomorrow yes. at five o'clock at the Michigan League, um, free and open to the public. Um, you, and the new work you said is less stylistic. So, what are some of the ways that this this short story collection is is stylistic? I think I think with this collection again at at that point in time that I was writing these stories, I was very much interested in voice, which is probably why all the stories are in first person. You know, most of the stories begin right away with a kind of visceral quality to them, of a voice that, you know, it almost sounds musical in a way. I think I was, I was more interested in being lyrical in certain moments. You know, I was, I think I was thinking a lot about the sound, sound and rhythm of the sentences, especially in a story like The Worst Degree of Unforgivable, which is, you know, 11-page sentence separated by semicolons. It's very, very repetitive. We must this, we must that. Um, when I look at this collection, I, I see it as kind of not self-consciously stylistic, but, but when you read it, 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 it feels to me like it's, sty- it's, it's, it's stylistic in a way. Um, whereas the newer stories in the new collection... They might have moments or flourishes where the voice um, and the rhythm and the sound gets a little, you know, sort of takes over the story. But I think the newer stories are, are, are more probably more interested in character. They're longer. Um, these stories are probably about 20 pages each. The stories in the new collection, I think they average like 39 pages long. Well, that is that um, is longer than. So yeah. and they're more they're just quieter, I would say. Uh, I don't see these stories as as quiet. You know, when I look at some of them. No. Um, I feel like someone in the review used the word quiet. And I just thought, I don't know. I don't think people should read any reviews of their books, because even if it's filled with glowing praise and elegant and a writer to watch all said in mm. this this review i just thought but there's moments that just seem so wrong that you think well if that's if you're not getting that if you're saying that something's quiet about this there's yeah. lots of violence and disconnection and loss yeah i i think when i some of the some of the writers who 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 wrote quotes for for this book if the sky falls i think a couple of them you know used words like the word visceral you know there's like a visceral quality to the prose that digs under your skin or something like that and when i heard that i thought you know i think i agree with that there's something visceral about the way the stories sound that that i don't think my newer stories have quite as much of and i and i and i think I think that was probably a conscious decision you know um i i didn't want to reproduce you know the same kind of book so um, so only in, in moments do, do the new stories have it, that kind of style. And it seems like um, if it seems like if you are saying that you're interested in the truth of fiction, it would be it's something that's going to be something that will uh, will be changing, metamorphosing in your work. So there'll be because I think you have like a close eye on fear in this one. Mm. So in in a yeah, stylistic I, way, I guess now I'm learning, but yeah, I think the f- the fear is in this in the new collections as well in the new collection as well because I, I tend to write about my fears. You know, my my wife who is listening right now to the show. Hello, Nicole. Hello, Nicole. Um, she uh, we we have this running joke that whenever I write a new story and I show it to her and she she reads it. She, she, first thing she says to me is, so did you kill me off in this one? You know, cause the, I, I have written a few stories where there's a couple who's married and the wife dies. And the way I explain it to Nicole is 
it's my it's one of my greatest fears. So of course I'm going to write about it. Right, you know? right. Um, and I think that's th- that's something I see quite often is I'll, I'll write a story and it's and something terrible happens in it. And it's not something necessarily terrible that's happened to me, but something I'm afraid of happening. And I, it's in a weird way you can sort of exercise some of those fears, you know, by writing about it. Um, but in the end, again, it all comes back to to sort of your autobiography, whether it's something that happened to you or something you're preoccupied with or something you're afraid of. Um, I am obsessed with autobiography, I think. Um, I, I Even in the classes I teach at Franklin or Marshall, um, as the students are taking their senior thesis class in creative writing, I really get them to start thinking about, what are you writing about? What's your subject matter? Why are you writing about that? You know, And I always say to them, I, I don't like to make them have this kind of existential angst, but I always say to them, if you only had one story to write, what would it be? Is it this one? If it's not this one, then go write, go write the one it would be. <laughs> Ramp the pressure up. <laughs> yeah, you know, write the story that you don't want to leave here without having told. And right. I think I try to do that. And it always, the, the stories I want to tell are, you know, very much related to my life, so. And so you don't, you, you, you well, it's funny that you say that, too, because many people will say about writers that what they're doing or poets, um, that they're writing the same poem over and over again, even coming at it from different ways. But but it seems like if you're being honest, that could also your concerns would be different, as you've you've already yeah. said. Yeah, I think show. they're going to change. They're going to change if you are going to change. And I think that's probably why I've never had this fear that some writers have of. I'm, I, I already wrote the story I'm going to, uh, the book I'm going to write. That's my book. I wrote it. It was my story, period. You know, I, I'm done. I have nothing left. I don't think that'll ever happen to me as long as I'm changing as a person. As long as I'm changing and growing, I'll always have a story to tell. It, it might take five years, six years, seven years to sort of have that material of my life stew around a little bit and, and you know, really come to the surface. But as long as I'm growing as a person, I'm, I'm going to have another book to write you know? Nick I think you're going to be on Oprah next <laughs> hey put in a good word for me if you know her oh I don't I don't I don't know we'll tell her to listen shoot I should have emailed her yeah. no I'm just teasing you because of the growing as a person thing no but that's quite that's quite yeah quite true it's, I really believe that and I actually had an experience this I don't know when it was oh, in the past year I, I wrote a nonfiction piece for the Washington Post magazine they have this summer reading issue and they ask writers to write a piece of nonfiction, a piece of memoir. I'm, I'm Michael Byers did that too, yeah, right? About I, the fishing, his fishing did. boat experience. He did. I think he did that a couple of years ago. And so they called me and they asked me to do this. And, I, and I've written nonfiction before, but this was the first time somebody had asked me to, to write a piece of nonfiction. And it was strange to write nonfiction instead of fiction. It was strange to be writing my autobiography, but not in disguise. Right. You know? So how did you do it? Um, well, there were some restrictions. You had to write about something that happened to you in the summer. So that was that. Was that. I had to restrict myself to those months and I wrote this I wrote this essay it was about this job I had as a security guard I, w- I was a security guard for Gucci when I was in college in New York and um, I guess I probably shouldn't have said that because they made me take that out of the essay for legal reasons <laughs> <laughs> so oh well it's out it was Gucci um, anyway and uh, why are you gonna tell us some 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 of Gucci's secrets well I, in the essay I talked about how the the security system there was was used racial profiling and it's, 
And there's a story. That's the story. That's the yeah. S- right. It's in there too. See, I do write my autobiography, right? Yes, it's, it's in true. there. It's in the it's in the fiction too. Yes. Um. So, and I was also at the same time having my first sort of relationship with uh, a woman who ha- happened to be African American, and I. So the essay was about juxtaposing these two things, and um, the Washington Post, you know, did have a lot of edits and and cuts for for legal reasons because I was writing about something that actually happened, and so. If anything came to the forefront as a major difference between writing nonfiction and fiction, it was that. It's that somebody can come and say sometimes, you can't put that in. You can't put that in. Whereas in fiction, you can put anything in because nobody knows. Because all books have that sort of disclaimer that says, you know, this th- these are not real people. These are not based <laughs> on real events. And the, actually, the other essay I wrote years back, which is about the writing of my first novel, I included my own disclaimer in the essay where I said, when I write my novel, my novels and my short story collections, I want my disclaimer to say the characters and events that you're reading about are based on real people and real events. Everything that happens in this story can be traced back to real people and, and to the author. Like, well, did you put, that. did you put that in your novel or have you, no, put you can't that do yet? that. You, you can't can? do that. No, they, they have to have, I think this disclaimer that says, no, it's, 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 these are not, this, these stories are not based on real people. But I, what I would love to do in an ideal world is in my books to say, yes, these characters and events, <laughs> of course they're about, <laughs> You know, real people, they're exaggerated, you know, they're fictionalized. I've used my imagination. But in in the beginning, they came from something real, you know. Right. So why pretend otherwise? Otherwise. Well, because it, well, it's so interesting to, to know that you don't shy away from that because so many people do want to distance themselves from, and for obvious reasons too, because you don't. There's that feeling that you don't want people to know things about you. But in a way, whatever you're writing about will be your obsessions and your concerns yeah. and, and the feelings behind it are, like, are the truth. And that's what we'll sense anyway. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, the thing is there there are exaggerations, of course. And so if I'm writing a character who's, you know, the narrator's father or mother or sister, it doesn't mean that that's my father or my mother or my sister. Of course not. You know, and I and I but it means that there's probably a piece of them in there and there's probably a piece of me in there too. Like any character that I write, even if it's a female character, even if it's a mother or a father, those characters have to at some point filter through me. So in a, in a sense, they're all me to a degree. You know? Yes. Yeah. Well, me, 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 me. <laughs> no, well, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, this, um, was, this was great. Did, were there any questions you didn't get a chance to ask me that you're just dying to ask? Oh, dear. I think, well, I, I was really interested to know about why you chose to use the eye in each story and okay. if that was something you were going to do again. So I feel like that was... Uh, I'm into the third person a little bit more now, but <laughs> getting to know the third person. A bit. Really? A little bit. A little What's bit. the third person like, Nick? Uh, he's, he seems to be a pretty good guy really? so far. He's working out for me. A buddy, a pal. Buddy, yeah. Not and quite as close, not quite as intimate, but right. you know. Yeah. He can't put words in his mouth. <laughs> Watch for things falling 
well um well people can come and hear some of your, your the new what you're working on right now yes. your current project and that book will be out next year you said the don't new- know yet because i'm i'm working on this novel now and my agent wants to try to sell both books at once so the story collection's finished the novels in progress and i think she's gonna find try to find a publisher for both for so. both okay so we'll have to wait for the short we'll stories all right well you don't well ann arbor you don't have to wait indefinitely though because you could go and hear um one one tomorrow uh, at the vandenberg room at the michigan league nicholas montemorano will be reading um new work and that'll be at five o'clock uh, tonight at Shaman Drum. Terry Blackhawk will be reading from her new book of poems. Um, thanks for listening, Ann Arbor. Thank you, Nick, so much for being here. Go! Oh, and you can go out and get um, Nick's book, If the Sky Falls, um, at one of our great bookshops. Um, You've been listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel. Thanks to Jesse Johnston for um, engineering. Thanks for streaming. If you're streaming anywhere outside in Ann Arbor. And uh, until next time. Sports Report. There to pick it up. Now here to Geis. Geis makes a move. Shoots and scores. Milan Geis with a sick move in the slot and beats Jordan Sigalat. I don't know how many moves he pulled off there, but Milan Geis scores. And we are tied at three goals apiece. Hey, what's up, everybody? Nothing like some Pat Benatar to kick off the DSR on a Wednesday afternoon. Hopefully, uh, your midterms have gone pretty well and you had a good fall study break. That was my first fall study break. And I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I studied real hard every day and I didn't play any video games or go out to the bar. Uh, I'm Mike Govier. We got Michael Tobin and Amy Amanovich here. We're doing.